1: Here at The Guardian, we love podcasts. Not only do we make dozens of award winners ourselves, but we also write about our favourite podcasts from around the
2: world too. Every week, our column Here Here, that's here, as in hearing, and here, as in where, comes out filled with recommendations from you,
1: our listeners. We sift through them all to find the hidden gems that the podcasting world has to offer these podcasts are often small yet mighty productions, which you probably wouldn't find highlighted on your usual podcatchers. So, if you're looking for your next podcast or have one that you want to share with the world, sign up for our
2: weekly Hear Here newsletter at theguardian.com forward slash podmail and send us an email at podcasts at The The Guardian.
1: Hello and welcome to Brexit Means, The Guardian's weekly look at what's what and what isn't in the ever more exciting world of Brexit. It actually did get quite exciting this week because a couple of days before EU leaders meet in Brussels for their next summit, the chief UK and EU Brexit negotiators David Davis and Michelle Barnier appeared on stage together for the first time in several months to announce that agreement had been reached on a transition deal. Now, on one level, this was obviously a result. The Brexit process remains on track. Businesses were reassured that they would not be falling off a regulatory cliff edge into complete chaos in March 2019 when the UK leaves. On another level, however, the transition agreement is anything but. First, It won't even happen unless Britain and the EU conclude the formal Article 50 withdrawal agreement in the autumn. And as we've discussed numerous times on this podcast, there are plenty of obstacles on the road to that. The air was thick with the sound of cans being kicked down roads, especially the 270 odd roads that cross the Irish border. Second, The transition period is strictly time-limited. It's 21 months until December 2020, and that's it, which many companies, not to mention customs officials, will tell you is not nearly long enough to get the systems in place that are going to be needed. And third, the transition period came at a very considerable cost, in the sense that an awful lot of British government and Brexiteer promises were broken and a great many red lines turned green, from money to borders, and yes, even to fish. So let's have a closer look at all that, shall we? With our regular experts, Dan Roberts, The Guardian's Brexit policy editor, and Jennifer Rankin in Brussels. Hello to both of you. Hello. Hello. Hi. Um, Let's start with the fact, shall we, Um, I suppose, that, 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 that the basic fact that transition, this whole transition deal is conditional on the final legally binding withdrawal agreement being reached in time, which basically means by the end of the year. Now, Jennifer, we've talked a lot about this, but just briefly, Michel Barnier said he was quite confident we would get there. But even if you leave the Irish question out of it, there's still quite a lot to sort out. Out, isn't there?
2: Yes, that's right. I mean, even even leaving out the Irish question, which still could turn into a crisis further down the track, there are still uh, quite substantial areas to for the two sides to uh, bridge. Uh, for instance, even though three quarters of the text is coloured in green, which sounds quite positive, there are lots of tricky issues that are still left white, which is essentially red in EU terminology. Mm. And these include things like police cooperation, some Eurotom issues, data protection. And these all sound very techie, but running through them like a, a stick of rock is is, um, is our old friend, the European Court of Justice. And there's a whole chapter on judicial procedures as well. So this is going to be very complicated. This goes to the heart of some of the UK's red lines, albeit they've been turning a little bit pinker in in recent weeks. So there's still a, a huge area there and the, all sorts of technical um, issues as well. Just to pick one, uh, geographical indications which um, Michelle Barnier mentioned yesterday. I mean the, the EU has asked the UK to legislate to ensure EU protection for products such as Parmesan cheese and mm-hmm. champagne, parma ham—all these uh, products we're familiar with—they want um, the status of these goods protected in UK law, and that seems to me a massive ask for the, the British Parliament to have to, uh, according to the EU position, legislate to protect these goods. In effect, it's, it's hardly taking back control, but yet the EU is insisting this has got to be done for the, the withdrawal agreement to come into force. So I think there are there are sort of numerous sort of. Traps, mm. um, elephant traps. There that we will we'll discover in the coming weeks. That's right. So every sort
1: of step forward we take, we're confronted with another set of, of concrete problems.
2: Basically, yes, exactly. And and uh, and behind them all is um, is uh, the Irish uh, border issue, which hasn't been solved but simply delayed. And could yet turn into a a, a real crisis point um, when we get to October.
1: Exactly. I mean, Dan, that's the really uh, that really is the elephant in the room, isn't it? I suppose. I mean, it was very noticeable. I thought in um, in the uh, uh, agreement that, that that the UK had to accept that EU backstop position, you know, having kicked up such a fuss about it so recently, uh, had to accept that default position that unless a future trade deal or a sort of magical new technology can manage to avoid a hard border, then Northern Ireland will simply stay in regulatory alignment with the EU. In other words, under EU law. I mean, Theresa May herself uh, said, you know, very recently that that was something no UK government could ever accept. I mean, is there any kind of solution in sight or even dreamed of for this, for this problem.
0: Well, I mean, I suppose the looking on the bright side, you could say they have a few more months to try and persuade the EU that um, the magic um, wand can solve this um they've got a few more months to talk about technological solutions Hmm. and i detected although i may may be alone in this um the emergence of a plan d if if the listeners (laughs) can cope with any more complexity but uh, the emergence of of a of the british yesterday seemed to me to only concede the notion that there should be a backstop um And at the risk of re-entering this horrible world of the the, the definite and indefinite article, that's (laughs) different from the backstop that is already written down in the EU draft text. And I Ah. think the crucial thing is that what, to to be fair to Theresa May, what what caused her a huge fuss the other week was not just that the EU wrote down their December agreement in Mm. sort of black and white legal terms, but they did it, it. um, within the framework of the single market in the customs union at a time when these are still very live debates and these are toxic words and I think what the Brits uh, thought they had accepted in December was regulatory alignment full regulatory mm. alignment as a backstop now you can see why Brussels might go well that's the single market isn't it and, <laughs> and they've kind of got a point yeah. but I think the plan D might be a backstop that says okay full regulatory alignment but we call it the way we we, we, give, we give it our name rather mm. than your name and um, now, they hope they don't get to that point still. They do hope that they can persuade um, uh, the EU and, crucially, Dublin, that there is a, a technological solution. Mm. But it's bought everybody a bit of time. And I think that's the key thing about yesterday, is everybody agreed to disagree a bit longer. Right. And it might drive okay. us all mad. Yes. <laughs> but they stepped back from the brink for now. And I think that given that... Um, uh, how vitally important it was to British business to have at least some some progress on a transition towards a transition deal, mm. and given that the EU and Dublin could have held us to ransom over that on that even more than they have already, they could have called stop on the they whole could thing. Have, they, they could they have just could. said, "Sorry, no. we're just not no. there yet." I think everybody has agreed, has conspired to agree to continue in the mutual bullshit for a little while longer. Um, okay. I, I don't quite understand to what end, but I but I but I think that counts for progress. It's, it's, it has
1: at, at least postponed crisis. Yeah. OK. Um, well, let's talk about time um, for a little. You know, you, you meant you said everybody has got a little bit more time. Uh, but actually, the time frame of this transition period is one of the potentially one of the key issues, uh, isn't it? I mean, it's clear, uh, you know, that, that both sides have, a, have a, at least a sort of political Interest in that transi- in the transition period being relatively short. Uh, for, I mean, the Conservative Britain's Conservative government first, because they're you know very keen uh, to be well and truly out of the EU before the next general election, which would be due in in 2022. And and the EU also because it doesn't want Britain hanging around in you know some kind of permanent Brexit. Brexit limbo, um, but the point about the transition agreement, as agreed or deal, as agreed and announced uh, uh, this week, was that it, you know it is non-extendable. It ends in December twenty twenty, um, and I mean way, way back in as it feels like back in twenty sixteen, government ministers promised they were promising that we wouldn't even need a transition deal. The future relationship could be sorted out in parallel with the exit talks and everything uh, would be signed, sealed and delivered by March 2019. Now... Uh, as a result of uh, of what we heard yesterday, it you know it looks like the the UK won't even be able to start getting down to the real nuts and bolts of the final trade deal until after we've actually left. So far from being as the prime minister called it, you know this sort of implementation period that companies could use um, to to get down to kind of concrete preparations for whatever the new trading relationship would be, it's now that this transition period is now going to be used to negotiate the. New relationship, which you know is 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 a lot of uncertainty for companies, isn't it? That, that means Dan bait doesn't it? I mean, doesn't that basically mean that this regulatory cliff edge that that companies were so scared of in March twenty nineteen has simply been postponed for for twenty well, months?
0: Well, first off, you've made a fundamental fallacy here, John. You've been listening to what politicians have been saying, it's <laughs> clearly irrelevant to this. person What they may or may not have told us was going to happen <laughs> really doesn't matter yeah. um, to what is a sort. Sort of day-to-day battle for survival by a government that doesn't know what it's doing or where it's going um, so that that aside yeah but that's the question you make you're absolutely right the um uh the transition period doesn't necessarily give well almost certainly doesn't give people enough time to solve the problem yeah. but i'm going to borrow a phrase i think this is one from jennifer so she, i hope she forgives me but she's made the point that brussels doesn't Um, really think that British business will ever be ready for Brexit, because you can't be, because it's going (laughs) to be a mess. So to some extent, you could make the transition 10 years, 20 years, but it it Mm. still wouldn't kind of solve that problem, which Mm. is that there will be um, pain and dislocation. The thing that worries me a little bit more is that I'm not even convinced that we've got, that that business can go away with some certainty that a transition will happen. I mean, Mm as we've discussed at the outset of this programme the Ireland question will come to a head again at the June Council mm. at the ratification process in the autumn there's no sign of the two sides really coming together on that no, mm. certainly not in a way that will keep the DUP on board so if you are requiring legal certainty um, that you know what your market conditions are going to be in 12 months a, time, as a company which is you, true you still of don't all really sorts of sectors yeah. if you're in yeah. insurance mm. airlines derivatives you mm. know commercial transactions mm. all these sorts of things that that lawyers are going to go yes, but how do you know you have the right to operate? But any licensed regulatory re- mm. regulated activity, all the financial services sector, they need to know in twelve months' time, will I be allowed legally to sell my product? Because otherwise, if I if I strike a contract with somebody promising I'm going to deliver something, I could come a cropper. Mm. They don't have that as of yesterday. Um, I'm several lawyers on the record yesterday making this point crystal clear. There is no legal certainty now. The pro-Brexit crowd, the the, the optimists yesterday will make the point, yes, but there was always that risk, that there was always the risk that this might all fall apart Mm. last minute or that it might not get ratified. But I think there's a big difference between the theoretical chance that the parliaments might turn around and break up the party Mm. last minute and what we had yesterday which was an agreement with great big gaping holes Mm, in it I mean this white space I know they decided not to colour it red for for diplomatic (laughs) reasons but at the end of the day the white space was even more glaring I mean um, it only looked all right when they projected it on a big screen at the back of the uh, the press conference and and, and made the type font really small so (laughs) you couldn't see how much white space there was but every line of that white space represents a gaping hole in the promise of certainty Mm, and that's what supposedly This was all
1: about certainty. Well, we don't have it. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. And, And Jennifer, from the EU's point of view, has the EU ever done a trade deal in 21 months?
2: Good question. Not that that I'm aware of, and typically they do take between five to seven years. I suppose if if you're being an optimist, um, which at the moment both sides are, they say, yes, there's a a common interest to do this in 21 months. The UK for obvious reasons, because it doesn't want to be stuck in transition limbo forever. And and the EU for a rather similar reason, because it doesn't really want a a potentially sort of truculent UK stuck in in transition Mm. either. But nonetheless, every time you talk to people who are a little bit, um, even about a little bit further from the negotiations, they say, well, they, this looks like a very tall order because it's not only about negotiating the agreement, but ratifying it as well. And under the EU system, for any trade agreement, that means going through more than 35 national parliaments as well, talking about each member state's. Parliament, mm. and then in several cases regional parliaments or upper houses So, and
1: we all remember it, wallonia
2: yes indeed we all remember <laughs> wallonia that it's a very uh, long and drawn out process and any any single parliament could call a stop to it mm.
0: do you think dublin will kick up rough do you think they will uh, buy this accept this fudge
2: i think they've accepted it for now uh, and what was agreed yesterday was basically just sort of a restatement of what was agreed in December, but I think it, it's going to be difficult in June, and, it's, and if it's not resolved by June, it will certainly come to a, a potential crisis point in October. Because in the, the Dublin have said all along, along with the rest of the EU, they don't want a hard border, but nobody, nobody sees where these uh, other alternatives are coming from. The EU has its backstop, but. Um, although they said the UK can come forward and they're ready to talk, discuss the UK's ideas, nobody believes that these technological solutions are going to work.
0: But have they? Miss, has Dublin missed its point of maximum leverage? I'm thinking, you know, if they were going to basically hold everything up um, uh, until there was a, a watertight solution to the border problem.
2: I don't think so. I think it's it's still there. I don't detect any signs that other member states are putting pressure on Dublin. But I just got the sense that, um, that the, the commission didn't really want to push this to a, a crisis at the moment. Maybe they, w- they wanted to give something to the UK, hmm. because if you don't have inferior transition deal in March, then the value of it starts to diminish. Yeah. Because it, I mean we know it's a political agreement, but just the fact of having Barnier and David Davis Announcing it yesterday, it sends a message to business, even if you look at the small print and you see the all the, the gaping holes that are there.
1: Yeah, I mean, there were a couple of small concessions, other small concessions weren't there made by the, the, by, by the eu which I, which also I think showed that. but we'll come on to those in, in a second. I just wanted to talk first um, a little bit about some some of those other u uh, k climb downs and capitulations of which there were a striking number uh, in this uh, transition deal, weren't there? Uh, I mean, Jennifer, first off, um, you know, British voters were promised by government ministers and indeed the prime minister uh, and all sorts of Brexiteers uh, that that Britain would not be paying into the EU budget after it left and that it would leave the jurisprudence of the European Court of Justice, uh, which you've already mentioned. And now, uh, as a result of what what we've learned uh, from the transition period, it seems the UK is going to be paying into the eu until something like you know 2064 and it's going to have to accept european court rulings throughout the transition period um there there wasn't i mean i mean the uk wasn't able to put up much of a fight on either of those was it
2: no it it really wasn't and i think it had to uh the government had to bow to the inevitable that if it did want a transition agreement these were the things that it was going to have to accept uh, paying into the eu budget it's its payments for 2019 and and 2020 and also unwinding and repaying, paying its obligations racked up over the last 45 years or so of membership. And I think, I mean, really, there was a recognition from the government quite a few months ago that there was really no no way to move on this. and, And it was left holding very few cards. But I think a, a really interesting question is how, how these red lines will, or whether they will be maintained in the future. Does, for example, does the UK want to pay into the EU research program? That would mean future contributions to the EU budget. Mm. Or does it want some kind of access to EU crime-fighting databases? That means EU data protection rules, and that means uh, through the back door, the ECJ. So there are these further sort of bridges to cross, uh, when we when we think about the future relationship, and I think there the, the, the UK does have more room for manoeuvre because you don't have to accept any of these things. Whereas when it comes to the transition and the withdrawal, they really were under a, a huge amount of pressure mm. if they wanted anything. But then it, it 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 goes to a very fundamental question about how the UK wants to to manage its its post Brexit future. Is there a where is the trade off between taking back control and you know Giving uh, British researchers or business mm. access to, to EU mm. um, programs, institutions, markets—it's, I mean, it's going to go to the heart of what the, the referendum the... was all about, and and what the debate um, should have been about.
1: Indeed, uh, and it's all going to have to be to be hammered out. Dan, you know, only again, only very recently, uh, Theresa May was insisting very loudly that EU nationals coming to the UK during the transition period were going to be treated differently to those who were already here. That's gone by the board as well. Uh, Britain's going to be accepting free movement as it stands until the end of the transition period now. Um, and as we mentioned last time, um, the government's caved in too on, on fisheries. Uh, you know, EU fishermen are going to have to continued ass- access to, to EU waters. Was all this inevitable? Is all this simply an indication of where the real where the balance of power
0: really lies? I'm suspicious of some of them. I think there was a negotiating tactic to throw up a bit of chaff here to kind of give to... to To to, to provide some easy climb downs that could be used to demonstrate British um, uh, willingness to cooperate for example 24 months or 21 months Mm. I don't think really matters I don't neither are long enough Um, um, but um, acquiescing to the Brussels timetable on that allowed David Davis to briefly look magnanimous mm. magnanimous, can't pronounce the word Do you know what <laughs> I mean, um, and, and the same I think really, uh, uh, the, although politically much more toxic, the fishing thing similarly, if you're going to remain part of the single market, um, the EU has already indicated that it regards uh, access to fishing waters to be a reciprocal um, um, uh, the other side of the coin mm. to, to the single market you know, you, fi- you let us fish in your waters, we'll let you sell our fish to our markets yes. they see those, now the big Battle is what happens in the in in the end state on that because they're attempting to hold fish to ransom in perpetuity, <laughs> and that'll make a row over the next two years yeah. look re- relatively easy. Um, but but I do think so many of these issues were um, were never really ones that the Brits could could um, hold out on in a transition. It made no sense to mm. go to the wall over um, citizens' rights when you've already accepted the principle that people arriving until now no. until Brexit uh, can can maintain their rights. The big question mark for me and i genuinely don't know the answer to this is that a clever strategy on behalf of, of of Whitehall, or is it one that has just shredded all british credibility because there was an attempt to put a gloss on it yesterday again by some of the the, the brexiteer press who were saying well these are not ever british red lines so so much as negotiating aims and of course you go into a negotiation willing to compromise on some of your objectives mm. otherwise it's not a negotiation well that's that, that you can kind of make sense apart from the fact that we've been here about 27 times on every single yeah. one. Yeah, they've that they, the they, these these aims or red lines or whatever you want to call them have been quickly jettisoned. And there does come a point when it starts to look a bit of a farce. I don't know whether uh, 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 Theresa May or David Davis have got any credibility left on this. Next time they stand up and say we must have X, mm. who's really going to believe them?
1: Yes, yes, uh, it, it does indeed pose the question, really, doesn't it? Of of uh, because the the, the, the Brexiteers, um, you know, have have basically swallowed uh, this transition deal uh, on the promise uh, that the end state will be as they want it. You know, you kind of have to ask. If Britain has been rolled over as comprehensively on the transition deal um, and, and Article 50 as it has been, what possible hope can there be that, it'll, that, 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 that UK will get what it wants out of the final out of the final settlement? But Jennifer, I just wanted to talk to one one EU concession that was interesting that kind of almost wasn't really in a way. Um, you know, the the, 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 the Brexit, uh, uh, pro-Brexit people were making a quite a, a nice song and dance yesterday about the fact that, that Liam Fox's International Trade Department is, after all, going to be allowed to negotiate and sign trade deals with countries outside the EU during the transition period, which was in doubt up until now. But, I mean, even that looks a bit of a hollow victory, doesn't it, really, in the sense that it, it's, you know, it seems highly unlikely that any third countries are going to want to go anywhere very concrete uh, with a free trade agreement agreement. agreement uh, with the UK until they know what Britain's future relationship with the EU is going to be like, which is going to, you know, they they won't. So that must have been a fairly easy concession for, for Brussels to make, no?
2: Yes, indeed. I, I agree with the whole premise of your question that it's, it's a concession that's really not much um, in, in, the, in, the, in the making. It's, it's, it feels like very thin gruel, doesn't it, that the UK now can negotiate, sign and ratify international agreements, but provided they don't come into force during the transition period. Well, what does that mean? That means that, yes, it can embark on negotiations, but at the same time, as you say, other countries will want to know what kind of deal the UK will have with the EU that will affect mm their negotiations. And then, of course, there will be so many negotiations to do. The, the British Civil Service will be working flat out to to negotiate all sorts of, of trade deals, and not only trade deals, but other international agreements. And I, I noticed yesterday, um, Michel Barnier, he, he again um, referred to the 750 international agreements mm. that the UK will have to renegotiate after Brexit and so it's not the first time he's mentioned it and there's always a, you get the sense a little bit of, of um, sort of glee about that that sort of good luck with that yeah. it doesn't feel like a concession that anyone in Brussels is losing any sleep yeah, over.
1: Monumental. What's the French for Schadenfreude John? <laughs> oh, very oh. good very good <laughs> question yeah. Uh, let us, because we wrap up really, um, by, by looking forwards a little bit, um, you yeah, know, we touched on it already a little bit. I'm just interested in in your views. Assuming that you know, uh, there's a lot of assumptions to make here, but assuming that a solution is somehow found for the Irish border, um, and uh, that all those other uh, uh, white areas and, and holes uh, in the certi- in the certainty that that, that Dan and Jennifer uh, referred to, uh, you know, get get bit turned to green, uh, and the withdrawal agreement does get signed off and ratified. Then are there any clues in this transition deal about the the, the future relationship um, Dan that, you know we, um, we, I said a couple of minutes ago that the Tory Brexiteers are saying they're basically happy to put up with with all the, this this kind of string of of capitulations um, as long as the final deal is the right one. but I you mean know, surely it's the case that it, i mean we the, the Britain has basically been pretty comprehensively steamrollered. Um, Um, over the last sort of year and a bit um what what is there to say that 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 process will not continue in the negotiation of the of the end state well i think their game is to get us past the point of no return and then
0: have a new prime minister and then do this all over again but with feeling i (laughs) I I I think that this is all about what a depressing (laughs) prospect (laughs) this is um um as far as May is concerned the, the the, this is about damage limitation. This is about sort of um, uh, keeping the party together um, long enough to get us to get them to the promised land. Mm. Now, I think in her vision of Brexit, that promised land is pretty sparse and, 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 and barren <laughs> um, because I think it looks like a very soft Brexit. And the clues are there in many respects. Uh, uh, the, the, the concessions we've been talking about are all pointing to um, a, f- a long-term mm. future that looks quite Norwegian. Um, But... The the Brexiteers are willing to bite their tongues and bide their time on that because they still feel that everything is still to play for in the long run. And if you put the transition deal aside, which in the in the in the history of mm. the um, of the great Albion that they want to resurrect, these two years will be a mere blip yes, in the eons yes, of yeah. prosperity ahead. <laughs> they don't really care about the two years, as long as they still get to have the big fight, which mm. is, you know, close alignment or mm. not, mm. which is now one that happens after exit. I think the terrible but,
1: thing, but uh, surely, I mean, the UK's position is going to be even
0: weaker after after we've left, isn't yeah, but it? But that, that's assuming that they—that's assuming that negotiation is 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 on the cut. I mean, I agree. I don't think uh, in, in terms of asking for things will be even more supplicant mm. by that point. But I, but I, but I think you have to put yourselves in the head of those who really do think that that walking away is still a real option. Yeah. and I think walking away in a funny kind of way is more of an option after you've gotten a withdrawal agreement, because then the, the plane is not an over. It's not a black and white overnight thing. Then it's the planes don't stop flying. It doesn't mm. all grind to a halt. It's more of a sort of long term strategy of sort of turning our back on, on 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 Europe that I think that they want to mm. pursue.
1: Jennifer, how does how does the EU see it, see things playing out, do you think?
2: I don't think there's a lot of emotion in how the EU sees it in the sense that they're, they're saying, well, look at the Brits, they're so weak, and now we're going to, to get one over them on their the mm. future relationship. I think really people are looking at it with a very cold-eyed logic of the EU's own interests, and that is that after Brexit, there'll be a block of 450 million people, and they'll want to protect the EU's legal order, has been said many times, to protect the single market and, and while, of course, different countries have different interpretations of how you might see the, the common interest in their own special uh, national industries, nonetheless, for all of them, there is a common uh, theme keeping them together: that it has to be better to be inside the club than to be outside. So why would why would the UK get anything that um, that wouldn't be available to, to mm. the EU members? And and constantly, the, the EU is just is one long very sort of complicated process of finding agreement within its member states whether that's on very technical regulations or on a common foreign policy so so i think the just that the fact of trying to sort of keep the eu together will become you know will become
1: the the sort of the overriding objective
2: yeah will become the, the the most important will remain the most important factor
1: Okay, well, that's it for this week. Um, thanks to Dan, Jennifer, for joining me once again. Next time we're going to be looking at citizens rights, uh, both the rights of EU citizens in Britain and British nationals on the continent. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions, please do email us at brexitpodcast at theguardian.com. That's all one word, brexitpodcast at Please subscribe, review on all your favourite podcatchers, join the discussion on Twitter, you just need to search for Guardian Podcasts next week then i'm john henley the producer was rowan slaney this was brexit means and thank you very much for listening
2: for more great podcasts from the guardian just go to theguardian.com podcasts
0: tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts